Well, I'm uh, super excited here uh, on our second uh, vlog podcast with the Dr. Mike Show, uh, talking all things pulmonary and critical care related, hoping to get uh, more information out to our patients about important uh, aspects of pulmonary medicine. And really the design of our show is to talk to people with compelling stories. I'm super excited today to have with us uh, an unbelievable, um, compelling story, an individual who is um, not just a um, patient advocate, but a patient himself, and a, a person that has um, a story that needs to be told more to help both our patients and, and education of some disease processes, which we're gonna talk about today. And furthermore, uh, I've been doing um, specifically pulmonary medicine for a really long time, and I have a passion for a specific type of uh, condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin defici deficiency, alpha-1 disease. It's a lung problem, a condition that impacts people's lives, makes it harder for them to breathe, and can be devastating at times. Uh, I do a lot of advocacy and going around talking to practices and doctors to educate them about that condition. About eight years ago, uh, when I was here in Chattanooga, I had the opportunity to go down and talk to a small town in, just outside of Atlanta. Part of that opening series of lectures, there was an individual named Len Geiger who gave an opening conversation telling a story. And I sat in the back of this meeting didn't know who this individual was at the time, and I was in awe. Um, the story was unbelievable. <clears throat> uh, the survivorship and what <clears throat> you bring to the community and how you got there is incredible. And after your conversation, I was like, <clears throat> well, this is uh, an individual I gotta get to, get to know, and this is a, a true hero. Of course, then I was asked to come up and speak after that, and I said, boy, that's a hard act to follow. So we welcome today uh, a gentleman named Len Geiger, who not only had a, the condition of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and he's going to tell that story, but also is a double lung transplant recipient and required a new set of lungs uh, to help him get through this. So welcome, Len. And um, It's a pleasure to be here. You tell your story. Uh, of how you got to the point where you were realizing you, you had a lung problem condition. Yes. And, and you mentioned something where um, you had a phone call and you were told you have 15% lung function. What, what did that mean to you or how'd you learn about it? And what do you tell other patients who are told they have something wrong with their lungs? Oh, geez. Um, th that, that original phone conversation was, was actually a, about my diagnosis of alpha-1 uh, prior to finding out what my lung function was. And that was a bit of a devastating conversation because it involved so many different things. Right. Uh, that I've got this disorder, um, that I'll be getting an IV on a weekly basis for the rest what of my life. What year was this about? This is 1994. How old were you? I was 35. 35. Which makes me, what, 42 now? Absolutely. Something yeah. like that. And, and I just turned 43. Hey. Uh, but leading up to that, were what were you, you were an active young individual? Yes. What were the symptoms you were experiencing? Like what what made you realize that I got I need to go see a doctor? Yeah, the, the primary things that were happening to me were um, uh, 
chronic chest infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, every winter, I'd get that really deep chest infection. I think a lot of people are familiar with that really right. deep you, bronchitis. You, oh, I got bronchitis. But every every it's every few years you get a really right. bad case of it. And I was I started off that way, and then every year that went by, I was getting it more and more frequently and a little more seriously. And Were you having wheezing? Or? I was wheezing, and uh, I I always declined to call it shortness of breath because that sounded like something really horrible. Right. So I just said I had tightness in my chest. Right. And I hear I, that a lot. I was having breathing issues. Right. But I kept on going to urgent care centers. But you didn't know any better. You're, you're minimizing your oh, symptoms, oh. but you, everyone's telling you you're, yeah. you know, you're just out of shape or something maybe. Well, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm a little bit older, I'm, you know, in my 30s. Whew. Um, and have gotten out of shape, maybe put on a few pounds. Uh, not as active as I used to be, so of course I'm, I'm, you know, having issues like that, and uh, I think I was having a, actually a, a, some denial going on right. at the same time, where I didn't want. To what have did to you deal do to it. try to compensate? Didn't you try to? I'm going to exercise more. Well, or? until uh, not until later, I, I did right. that. There was, a, but for a long time, my compensating was doing what everybody does when they want to compensate because they can't breathe. Right. They stop walking upstairs. They walk more slowly. They come up with excuses. Um, you know, and like, at some point, didn't someone just tell you, oh, you just have asthma? Or, okay, it, so this is this was my f- first chance to actually go see a, a, a real primary care physician. Right. I had been going to urgent care centers where they would treat the acute exacerbation that I was having. Right. But, it but was, not go much farther than not just... Go, no deeper than that. You know, no deeper than that. And, a 15-minute visit. Here's an inhaler and antibiotic. Yeah, yeah. Antibiotic and expectorant and right. get some rest. Drink a lot of fluids. You're going to be fine. And I was. And you and you got a little bit better. And then I get sick again. Did you ever <laughs> talk to your family at no. any point to say, you know, did mom, dad, any of you guys ever have breathing problems? No. I did the opposite. I hid it from everybody. You hid it from everybody. Yeah. Not just from myself, but from everybody. And and that it was it was actually a, um, it was my 35th birthday that my parents had invited me out for a, a nice dinner. I was married at the time. It was right. me and my wife and my sister and right. went out to eat dinner and uh, uh, celebrate my 35th birthday. And when it was over, I was planning on walking to my parents to their car and I couldn't because uh, I, I was leaning on a stranger's car right outside of the restaurant door trying to catch my breath. Cause and, this, and cause just for I everyone myself, out there, yes, that's not normal. This is not normal. This is not normal at all. Um, I, I, because of the feeling in my stomach, my, I, my, from my understanding, it's my diaphragm didn't really have anywhere to go, so I couldn't put any more air into my lungs. And not being able to walk across a parking lot and having my entire family staring at me, see, seeing that—that that was the big turning point for me, where I, where I went to go seek help. And um, who was the first person you went and sought help for? This, I went to go see uh, my physician uh, with Kaiser Permanente in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Michelle Huggins, who she was the one who had two years prior to that mm-hmm. had actually diagnosed me with exercise-induced asthma, right. which I'd been taking um, albuterol for right. and using lots and lots and lots of it and, and not getting any better. Not, no, no improvement? No, no, really, really not. I went back to see her the very next day and told her that this doesn't seem like asthma to me. I said, would you please test me for everything you can think of? And right. she had been to a conference recently yes. where she had heard about this rare genetic thing that can cause bad similar to what we opened up with like a patient advocacy or yes. a cme conference like something that. like that and yeah. a little and jewel of nugget of yes. knowledge was put in her right. brain 
So she did all the normal things, the things that she should do right up front, the EKG, ordered a chest X-ray, ordered a spirometry, and then drew some blood to send it off to the lab just to rule out this rare thing. Right, this rare thing that... You couldn't possibly have it. That's new. new, I heard about it in a conference. It's so rare. I've never tested anybody before. Why in the world? You were the first person she ever tested? Yes, to the best of my knowledge. I mean, I I should phrase it that way. And two weeks later, I got the telephone call. And that was the call. That was the call. Yes, so, so you already knew you had bad lung function? I No, I did not even know. We had never mm-hmm. done any pulmonary function okay. testing until that phone call. And that was when I went to the pulmonary okay. lab. And that's when I found out that I was going to be in Tell me a little bit about the phone okay. call. What oh, was... Oh. So she tells you over the phone... Yes. This rare test that she didn't think you ha- uh, were going to be positive for... Yes. Comes back bad news. Yes. How did you digest that? What were the thoughts initially? And then what was your response the next day? Is okay, what am I going to do? Well, it was, it was actually kind of an interesting conversation because you got to remember it's 1994. So she didn't call me and say, this is what you've got. You should look it up on the internet. Right. Because there was no Google or Yahoo right. or anything like that. And she certainly couldn't send a link to my iPhone. So again, no, there was no iPhone. Right. Um, and so she's reading text to me out of a book and it's all going right over the top of my head and and I, I really didn't catch what she was saying it, it took a while for me to to comprehend the, the depth of the of the, the nature of the telephone right. call but then she starts telling me you know here you need to write down all these telephone numbers and it involved uh, intravenous treatment and pulmonary function testing and a referral to a pulmonologist who's going to be taking care of me and at some point is going to send me to a center to be evaluated for a lung transplant. Right. This was a heck of a conversation. Yeah. One call over the phone, not even face to face at this point. Well, she was in a rush to get the information to me and she did stop herself and actually said, hold on, do you need to come in so we can talk about this? But we do the same thing. I mean, sometimes the test results are so important. Yeah. Uh, patients uh, have some anxiety or they want to know right away and we try to give them information as soon as I get the results by phone with the expectation that I'm going to see you tomorrow so we're going to talk more about it. I just want to get you the initial and We did later. We did yeah. later. But it was it was very <clears throat> difficult trying to absorb all that information and, and in my mind trying to remember what she had said and you know, knowing that I don't understand this but I'm a smart guy I'll, I'll, I'll figure right. it out. What kind of work were you doing? Uh, I was actually in, I was in medical sales. You were, yeah, yeah. Selling Strangely what? enough, uh, I think at that point I was in the reference laboratory business. Okay, I had so you knew familiar lab work and lab oh, tests. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, I I I knew what an alpha one test cost, yeah. oh, and that's I wild. I knew who I sold it to. I just didn't uh, know what it was for. That's crazy. I, that part I never knew. Yeah, well, there were ten thousand other tests I yeah. sold, so it was, right. you know, that's yeah. cool. So then, going forward, there you. Um, what happened next? Like, where, where did you go after this? And, and then when did you realize you have a, uh, this is not just a conversation about, hey, I, I have a diagnosis, but I have a serious issue that I need to start evaluating more, uh, considering more carefully where to get treatment and, and what kind of help did you seek? Because a lot of my patients or patients out there, very similar story, but they don't know who to turn to next beyond getting maybe a referral from their PCP. Like how, well, th- this because it was um, an HMO, mm-hmm. and I was they planned everything for me. Okay, and had, had everything all set up for my IVs and for my 
I mean, for the, all the treatment that they, you know, that but I was going to need. It's a fairly novel treatment time. and no one's really experienced enough with it, but they already had that they in were, their network. Their, their database was, was pretty up to date. That's great. And um, Very I, lucky. I, I know. I was extremely lucky, ridiculously lucky. I mean, number one, to have been diagnosed in, in, that quickly uh, once right. we re, you know realized how, how bad this was, but also to have a to be with an organization that 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 knew how to take care of and knew how to regroup and and wrap themselves around me to some degree. And we like to say you say diagnose quickly, although you were probably <laughs> having symptoms like yeah. from the age thirty to thirty five, yeah, or maybe even late twenties. Late twenties, so it's really like a good five to eight years before yes. you got, got a diagnosis. Yes. And um, we, we we talk about how it's often that's a very standard pattern we see in the office of a referral, someone who has breathing issues. And sometimes it takes two or three physicians yes. before someone raises the red flag and does this special test, which is a simple test to do. And sometimes it's five to eight years later before that diagnosis is And he's is lost made. a lot of lung function over that and, period and, of time. Um, and like I tell our patients, and you know how important this is, lung function is the name of the game. Our job is to preserve lung function. And you know already now at this point that you had 15% lung function. At, I, at, at that point, I had um, mid-30s. Mid-30s. Yes, percent, which is still horrible. Horrible. Anything Just below really, 50% yeah. is really you know yeah, it's, it's, worrisome. Below 30, we tend to say, hey, you're, you're going to be a respiratory cripple. And, and now you're you're uh, progressing in a way that you're declining rapidly. Yes. And so so the, the therapy did slow it down. Um, how long were you on therapy for before we kind of get to this point where you start in therapy and and then how many years between that when you now are someone approaches you and say, hey, we need to think about a, a lung transplant. It was actually only about three years. Three years before we decided it was time to start really looking at it. I got a, I had a very very serious exacerbation, right about three years out, a little bit less, and, uh, I mean we're talking about I was bed bound for several weeks. Right. And it took forever to high recover dose steroids. From that. And high do very high dose prednisone. And and yeah. I mentioned that because that that's going to be an important part <laughs> of the story yes. that uh, uh, that's a teaser, everyone, so that we'll get to why that is critical. And then the other thing is exacerbations uh, for physicians and for patients is super important to treat aggressively because it, every exacerbation, you lose a little lung function and you never get it back to the same level you were at yeah. before the acute event. So we really wanna be aggressive at treating those exacerbations early with uh, high dose steroids and antibiotics in the effort to preserve lung function. Yes. So one of the more interesting things that happened to me pretty early on was when I was told what the medication was that I was going to go on. And of course, there's again, no, no internet for me to go on and try and right. find out about this. Went to a drugstore. I <laughs> had them print out the package insert for that medication. No kidding. And at that time, and this has totally changed since then, but it opened with a description of the disorder. And it was alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency comma, usually fatal, comma. Well, that's as far as I read. I just was like, what? So she didn't tell me that part. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, like, fatal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was which, uh, difficult. Of course, we're talking a long time ago. Things have dramatically changed. Yes. And we have great therapies and, and uh, offer great hope and, and, and long-lasting, improved 
life for our patients. Yes. But at this point, you're faced with a, what you think is a fatal diagnosis. Started off as asthma, identified as alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, declining lung function, and here you are now with told fatal. Uh, at this point, uh, uh, you know, you kind of are living this young, healthy life. You thought you're th in your 30s. And now all of a sudden you kind of fall, hit rock bottom, uh, or you, did you go through some, you know, uh, uh, emotional distress to say, how am I going to get through this? And Traumatic life changes. Traumatic life changes. Um, starting with recognizing that I was losing lung function and that the safest place for me was going to be home. Right. Um, made a decision with my pulmonologist that it was time for me to go on disability. So mm -hmm. I had to lose my job. Mm-hmm. Um, went through a divorce, um, pretty much lost everything right? and was living a very, very different life from the one that I had prior to all of this and especially pr very different from the plans that I had for myself and worst of all, it interrupted my life right. from my prime earning years from about, about you know, mid thirties to mid forties. I wasn't able to to make any money. You, you didn't, couldn't it, do anything. It was just, it was... You couldn't breathe. Yeah. How did you pull yourself up from the bootstraps? How, how did you rise two to, things. To, to really a true hero in my eyes? Two things. The first was um, I started volunteering. And I think one of my biggest issues that was that I, that I was not doing anything. And because of that, I was in a depression. Right. And I had no reason to get up in the morning and I had no reason to get dressed. So I didn't. And that is no way to go through life. Mm -hmm. And so this, it, it wasn't just me. This is with some help as well, with of some course. people who were making suggestions. And one of the things was, you know, if you thought about volunteering, because they're not going to take away your social security disability income for doing something for free. Right. Well, we're, it, at this point, financially, that's a really real yeah, it's concern. A very, Many of my patients very, are very, very concerned. So, so I, I started volunteering within the Alpha One community and um, eventually became the support group leader for the state of Georgia, mm -hmm. which was very, very important for me. And then I volunteered in my local community with the Arts Council and the Children's Nature so Science Center. You, this is your kind of, your, all of a sudden you have a call to action and you're like, I'm going to be a patient advocate and start yes. vo volunteering yeah. for Alpha One. And maybe I might have a fatal condition, may not be here. Long, but I'm going to try to help some other people. Yeah. Not not realizing at this point that you know your story. That, we're that only a going quarter to be away, something. right? <laughs> through your story. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't recognize the the, the eventual immensity of what that ended up. Right. You know, where, what came from starting with that volunteering, right. where that ended up. Um, so you you look, you're doing this. You're learning a lot. You're exposing yourself, opening up to a lot of people. Right. You find that so, you enjoy so, this. So I was, I mean, even like I said, in my local community, um, everybody in my hometown eventually knew, you know, oh, this is what he's got. Right. And they, so they had an understanding of the disorder itself. Um, that helped a lot. But I think more importantly, it gave me, you know, a, a reason to get up and a reason right. to get dressed. And, and I think what, one of the most important things that I was missing in my life was a purpose in my life. Right. And so this was that purpose, the volunteering, which was never something that I ever thought I was going to do. I mean, right. never, as a professional, it never crossed my mind right. that I should or could. Right. 
uh, and it, it changed my life, it saved my life. And then uh, something else happened. Yeah. And it had to do with a recognition of, of, a, of, of w the condition that I was in, of recognizing what that really meant and what it didn't really mean. And um, I had always been told I had 38% you know, of my lung function left or 28% of my lung function left or 25% of my lung function left. And we're watching it decline. decline. And I came to the recognition that that's not true. Whatever lung function I've got at any single moment is 100% of the lung function that I've got. Yes. Now, it may not be very good, but in my case, it's never going to get better. And we're watching as it get, gets worse. So this is as good as it gets. Do 100% with what you got right now. And so that was when I got very serious with my exercise. And I was already on supplemental oxygen, had been for several right. years. And I went to the gym and I started seriously, seriously exercising, taking care of myself. I had my O2 with right. me. I had my pulse oximeter with Dedicated. me. I was, you know, tighter my speed and my O2 flow yeah. back and yeah. forth and, yeah. and got very serious with treadmill work and lifting weights to the degree that I was able to. Right. Um, I had developed a bit of a mantra for myself, which was to reevaluate myself on a routine basis, make sure that I'm staying on the right path, right, and then rehabilitate myself to the best of my abilities, understanding those abilities are going to change over time, and then never stop. So just those three right. simple things can can change your life. So it wasn't pulmonary rehab; it was it was a gym. But you were essentially probably doing better I, than I, pulmonary rehab I, of what you were doing, to be honest with you. I did have a funny conversation once with my pulmonologist, and I asked him, I said, did you ever consider putting me in pulmonary rehab? And he went, no. I said, why? And I was a little upset. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he says, well, because you're doing more than they would do with you. And honestly, you're probably doing things they wouldn't let you do, right. but I trust you. You know how your body is working, and you've got right. the equipment to to take care of it. And I was like, oh, okay. So now at this point, you, you're basically excessively exercising better than any pulmonary rehab program would probably give you. You hit uh, a lung function probably where you couldn't even exercise maybe anymore or you start to see a decline. You're tracking it. How did you get um, the evaluation process or into the lung transplant um, process and tell me a little bit about the the call you get that uh, triggers. You know, we're going to get okay. some new lungs here. So, so let's let's start at at the beginning of that conversation, yeah. which would be the really horrible exacerbation that I had, the one that put that just knocked me out, and uh, left me bed bound. And my pulmonologist wanted to admit me to the hospital. Right. It was like every day he was calling. He goes, "Let me admit you. Let me admit you." And I'm like. Nope. The hospital is where people go to die. Right. And I don't, I'm afraid that if I go into the hospital, I'm not going to get out of the hospital. You're going to live 100% with what you've got. And, and, and you don't want and to And my 100% is not very good right now. Right. I can't breathe. And this is when the high doses of steroids really started. It was, mm -hmm. and I'd already, that it had happened a, a number of times already, but this was. Yeah, many episodes of steroids. Really, yes. And we know some of the side effects of steroids besides uh, cataracts and glaucoma and. Uh, elevated blood sugars. Uh, one of the processes is also uh, bone demineralization, or you lose uh, the 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 strength of your bones. And then also steroids. Steroids have an effect 
which becomes uh, important later in your story here of uh, decreasing blood flow to certain very important joints and, right. and avascular necrosis, we call that. Yeah. So, so, so this was, it was after I'd gotten well from that, I mean, well, <laughs> uh, from, uh, from being that ill and had gotten over that had recovered as much as I was going to. I had a different plateau. It wasn't as right. high as it had been. I right. lost some permanent lung function. Um, and I'm back to the gym and I'm exercising. And this is, um, when I had the, the first monkey wrench really thrown in. I mean, I guess it's not really the first monkey wrench, is it? Um, I started having pain in my lower back right. that got worse and worse. And then it migrated around to where I couldn't localize it. Didn't know where where it hurt. I just knew it, that it hurt and it hurt more. Right. And my legs started getting weak. And I went to go see a, a physician about it. I was originally told I had sciatica, mm -hmm. which I didn't. Mm -hmm. But it led to a series of, of meetings with different doctors and different tests right. and different misdiagnoses. And um, it was a radiologist who came up with the correct diagnosis. And he said that what I have is prednisone-induced bilateral avascular necrosis of the femoral heads. Yeah, your hip bones. My hip. And, yeah. and they were dying. Yeah, so the, the blood supply had been cut off right. to my hip bones, both of them. Yeah, avascular necrosis of the hip. Yeah. And it's a serious complication, a side effect of a, a high-dose prolonged steroid use. Yeah. And it's a risk you sometimes yes. take when you're trying to preserve lung function. Ridiculously painful. Yeah. Just ridiculously. Because you're experiencing both the death of the bone and the fact that the, the, the padding between the bones on the working surfaces is disappearing. Right. And so you're getting what's left of the nerves. Just rubbing. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Just horrible. You walk so, like a crab. So now you're uh, in this lung transplant uh, role, getting evaluated, and you have to have your hips replaced. Right. And from the steroid side effects. And there's a debate between your lung transplant team who wants to give you new lungs, uh, but you need a new hip, and they don't yeah. think you might be able to survive a hip surgery. They're debating which surgery to do first, and ultimately yes. you wind up getting a hip surgery first. So what was happening was that, the, uh, of course, the orthopedic surgeons who were going to be doing the hip surgeries didn't want to do this because they'd have to put me under, and they were afraid to, you know, with my, I was probably had about 20% of my lung function left at that point. Right. And uh, they were like, no, you have to do the transplant first. And the transplant team says, if he can't rehabilitate post-transplant, we're not going to do the transplant. Right. So figure it out. And what they ended up doing was um, a spinal on me and Versed. Yes. Yeah. Conscious and sedation. It's conscious sedation. And, and block the nerves down below and do yes. it while you're awake. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, well, conscious that yes, he's right. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I, I was so bruised and beaten up on the right hand side because they had to try out the you know, the right size. It was a, right. it's kind of an you know orthopedic right. it's, carpentry it's a tough surgery. And three months later, we did the other side, and that time was a much cleaner. But I also woke up twice, wide awake. Still remember the conversations with the anesthesiologist. Wow, you know, are they doing such and such right now? And he goes, "Yes, they are. I'm going to put you back down now." Okay, yeah. <laughs> amazing. So, That's uh, incredible. But this, unfortunately, was one step down from where I had been because I had been exercising five to seven days a week. And when my back started hurting, which ended up actually being my hips, right. I had to stop walking on the treadmill and stop doing the exercise that I was doing for a long period of time. And then I had the hip replacements. And by the time I got back to the gym, 
I realized that I had lost all that muscle mass. Right. That I was keeping on by going five to seven days a week. A lot of lung function. And now the lung transplant team saying, hey, you need to be in better shape or you need to get yes. uh, rehabilitated back to where you were before all this happened because otherwise we won't be able to give you uh, list you on the transplant. Yes. You're, you're now faced with this. And then how did you get the call or what happened? So leading up to that was from that, I guess, 2000 to 2002. It was about a two-year period of the, the probably the worst point in my life, I think, of um, not knowing if I was ever going to get a telephone call to get a right. transplant. You're carrying a pager around? No, no, no. no, no everybody, we had cell phones had by cell then. Phones we had now, right? okay. stuff. Yeah. Yes. It was not a an flip iPhone, phone. but it was a flip phone. <laughs> yeah. It was a flip phone of some sort. And um, so the, I said, are you going to give me a page? And they go, you got a cell phone? I went, yeah. And he goes, so? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What center were you at? At this point, I was at the University of Virginia. University of Virginia. Okay. And Were you living up there or were you still living? No, I was still living in Georgia, just okay. outside of Atlanta. And you had a good cell phone signal. And had a good cell phone signal. Um, it, it was it was an interesting time in my life. It was not a fun time in my life. Oh, of course. But that, that whole, you know, I'm dropping from 20% lung function down to 19 to 18 right. to somewhere between 15 and 18%. So tell me where you were when you got the call and, and what went through your head the moment you hung up the phone. It was Memorial Day weekend. It was on Sunday, Memorial Day weekend. And um, I got a phone call and they said, this is a transplant coordinator with the University of Virginia. And we're calling to tell you that we have lungs for you. And we want to make sure you're ready to come in and get your lung transplant. Memorial 2002? 2002. 2002. Yeah. And my response was, hold on. <laughs> Do you understand? I've been waiting for five years for this telephone call. And I was hoping I was going to get it someday. But what I did not know was that it was going to be today. So can you give me some time? And I was like really adamant. I need, I need some time. And her response was, you sound upset. Calm down. Everything is fine. You take your time. I'll hold. <laughs> I like the I'll hold part. I, I now, don't think she understood what I meant. <laughs> transplant coordinators are wonderful people because yeah. they get it. Yeah. Uh, and they really make up the success of a program or not. And, I and totally I know agree. Exactly, I totally and, agree. And I know exactly what she was doing with you is, yeah. is you know, I'll hold. And then, yeah. so what it's did like, you go? Without what? having to say, no, you don't have any time. Right. It was just very pleasant. Right. Um, How'd she talk you into a well, she understanding? Well, she didn't. No, I always just had to make up my own mind. And right. What I, what I wanted to do was call everybody I know mm -hmm. and, and say, this is the deal. They are offering lungs to me, but there's like a 10 to 15% chance I'll never see you again. Will you help me understand what it is that I should do? Right. And I couldn't. Yeah. And I had to make up my own mind. And immediately, where this, were you? I was I was at home. You're at home. I was at home by myself. By yourself. And um, you know, too many thoughts going through my head. Now you have your your family at this point. You your wife. Uh, your right. I have my mother wife, and father. That's that's, that's, that's what I, and we you no, know no I, my mother and father had, had the my entire hometown. Right. That was support. A big right. gigantic part of, of my you know support system. Huge. You know all the volunteer work that I had been doing had kept me so active and social that. 
and you know, I was uh, never going to go without the transplant coordinator and through the process, you know, you know, in your head that, uh, this is not just getting a new set of lungs. It's exchanging one set of, uh, one set of disease problems for a whole nother set of issues that you're going to have to deal with, right. uh, with a successful lung transplant, knowing that as I tell many patients and the odds have uh, you know, certainly improved and technology is better, but you know, um, uh, you know, out of every 10 patients we transplant, about 50% of them in the first year don't make it. Uh, and then out of the 50% that remain next five years, you know, you know, 10 to 20% may not make five years survival. Um, and so, you know, that's a tremendous burden of decision and it's your decision. Like you said, you need to make that decision for yourself, but you but I'll, uh, I'll wait for, I'm going to put you on hold because we need that decision now. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the my thought process that that made it simpler for me was to recognize that I haven't smiled in over six months because I've just run out of things to smile about. My quality right. of life was so low right. that it didn't really matter to me. I was at the what, what is it that they say? They call it the try or die. Yeah. So you know, you're not going to make it much longer, and you're not enjoying this. And you realize you got that call, and you're yeah. smiling. It's it's time. So you get so they had made arrangements for a yep. Learjet air right. ambulance right. to fly me from Gainesville, Georgia to Charlottesville, Virginia. It's about 500 miles. It takes about an hour. Um, no time at all. They had, you know, prepped me for right. surgery. I, had, I was all shaved down and painted kind of orange and really odd. It was a very relaxing experience for me, actually, because I had just, I had done everything that I could for so many years and everything that I could, everything that all my medical professionals could do for me. Right. But we were at a dead end and it was like, yeah. it was, it was, it was a lot of anxiety at first. And then when you just kind of a release of, right. and now's the time. And that's just, always the tends to be the case. You kind of get to the point where we know you're ready for lungs and we're looking for lungs. Um, yeah. and you know, there's a lot, there's a small window of opportunity exactly. where you're too healthy. You're too healthy. To get the uh, you're healthy healthy, enough, you're healthy enough that you don't need the lungs, but you're not really sick enough yet either. But then sometimes you can get too sick and and you don't qualify for lungs. And that small window, and when you get that call, it's really important. And and I want to talk more about those lungs at the very end here. But we know you're here today, and it's it's a a success story. Tell me quickly. how you handled that success. You get out of the hospital, you have a new set of lungs. What did you go do? Um, Well, what I wanted to do was uh, to take advantage of the years of exercise that I had been doing to the degree that I could do it. But now I've got lungs that I can breathe with, so I can do that same thing, but go so far beyond that. Because you're breathing great now. I I had incredible. You're getting your muscle mass back. Well, what I wanted to do was run. Right. Because I wanted to really become sh- make myself short of breath and then recover from that and do it over and over again and just get better and better. Right. And because of the artificial hips, I couldn't run. Right. And I couldn't walk fast enough to make myself short of breath. I couldn't so raise you decide to pick up? The, this made the, the most, it was the most stupid decision I've ever made in my entire <laughs> life. This is great. I, I decided 
I will take up mountain biking. Mountain biking with a brand new. With two fake hips and a double lung transplant. What a great idea. And not just kind of do it a little bit. You're all in on mountain biking. Yeah. And racing and and trying to compete. Yeah. Well, I'm competing with a friend of mine who is a very active mountain biker. Right. Uh, it's really his fault. He's the one who talked me into getting a mountain bike to start and, with. And what happened? And about three months in, I wrecked my mountain bike, right. which we all knew was going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, I wrecked it very badly. I did a, it's called a Superman. Mm-hmm. Went over the handlebars, flying through the air, thinking to myself, don't land on your chest because, uh-huh. you know, it's, yeah. you're only barely three out months a, out of this. Yeah. So let's twist in the air. And I did. And I landed on my left side and proceeded to shatter my left femur. A femur, a, ser- a femur it, fracture, as we all, uh, many people may not know, serious fracture. Extremely can, serious. Uh, painful, lose a lot of blood, yeah. can be a real medical emergency and, and require surgery and, and be disastrous. Yes. In a, in a in lot, a, of, different, in, in a lot a, of different reasons. In any normal, healthy, regular person. Right. And... Um, it took them about five and a half hours to put my leg back together. Uh, I've got steel plates and a scar that's from my knee all the way up to my waist and uh, all these screws and wires and things like that. And um, But the important part was that they put the doctors had put me back together. And I'm in the hospital bed and thinking to myself, okay, I've got a broken leg, but I'm okay the doctors once done, again have, have done their thing over they replaced the hips they fixed me they fixed my leg they fixed me i'll have to wait for my leg to repair but i'll be able to get back to some kind of you know really really high intensity exercise life and um and i was it just took a little bit longer than we had expected because of the detour that i took about two and a half hours after the surgery when i threw a fat pulmonary embolism yes so a fat pulmonary embolism, essentially like a blood clot, uh, but it, uh, the bone marrow in your femur, one of the largest bones in your body, has a lot of fat in it. And that fat, a fat bubble basically, can travel up into your, your blood vessels that supply the oxygen to the lungs um, and allow you to pick up oxygen from the lungs. Of course, the anatomy of the lungs are a fascinating thing to me. That's why I'm the lung yes, doc. Right. Uh, it's a has a dual supply of uh, blood, uh, but when you get a lung transplant, one of those supplies go away, and so it's very important to protect the single supply that you now have. And getting a fat embolism, uh, along with the inflammatory and the immune system response that triggers with that, is also blocks the flow of blood to the lungs. Um, so I quit breathing. And so you have a set of transplant and you quit breathing and you're on a ventilator at some point. Yes. And, and they induced a coma mm-hmm. and almost immediately made plans to airlift me by Learjet air ambulance mm-hmm. all over again back to the University of Virginia. Yeah. And um, no one was able to wean me off of the ventilator. I, they couldn't get me to breathe on my own. Right. So I was in and out of this induced coma. Um, and we're making attempts to try to get you off the right, vent, right. and and it's not working. Right, I'm suffocating over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, three weeks after my bike wreck, the sirens went off in my room in MICU, medical ICU, and they came in and found me still unconscious uh, from the induced coma, but I had extubated myself and taken everything out of my throat, and I was breathing on my own. And um, 
Amazing. A, a, a miracle. Ridiculous. Right. Um, it's not supposed to happen. It like was that. in your time. And they sent me home four days later. Yeah, just yeah. rapid turnaround. Yes, it's like, because they didn't want me to die in their hospital. That's yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, good, you're fixed. Get out of here. <laughs> um, so you have a, a set of lungs. You go through the, uh, another episode where you almost uh, lose those set of lungs. Uh, you survive, and and there's a higher calling. Obviously, there's something for you left to do. And um, I, I want to talk about you decide. You know, you're you're going to do something now, um, and advocate and and live beyond your wildest dreams, as you as you say. And I kind of want to talk about this legacy that you have, okay. um, and talk about your lungs and you because the, you have two legacies, yeah. really. I want to share with you a picture I have that I find very inspiring, um, and maybe you can sh we can show this to the audience. But this pic picture I I have of you, and and maybe you can comment about who this person is in this picture, what you were doing here, and and I try to sometimes give that to my patients who are going through struggles with their alpha one disease and being considered a transplant, because you're you're smiling, but you also are really in. Uh, introspective there in that profile picture of you. So tell me about that, your lungs and who the person is and, and what you do. So um, about a year and a half after my lung transplant, I started a conversation with my donor's family, with the family of the person who had donated lungs. Didn't know anything about them. And um, eventually found out that my donor was a 14 and a half year old girl. She saved five people's lives. Five people's just lives. Just with solid organ transplant. And I, I met her family. I guess it was, I wrote a letter to them a year, a year after the transplant. And it was about a year and a half after that we met for the first time. And they were receptive to your outreach? Very much, very much. They were actually broached the subject of, you know, I didn't want to yet, but they were, they were saying, we'd really like to meet if you are interested in that. Right. And I was, I'd been afraid to start that conversation and they and arranged also through the transplant coordinator. Yes. So yep. arranged, well, yes. Again. Got the whole thing Very all cool. set up uh, back at the university of Virginia. I was going up for a checkup. They were from Lynchburg, Virginia, and they yeah. just drove up to, to Charlottesville and we met, um, and spent two hours together the first time we met. And, and just like your life wasn't over yet, you had something like her life isn't over yet either. There's two legacies. So, and that, uh, you have fa uh, family now, and um, you've, if I uh, can share, you, one of your daughters is. Uh, I have one child. One child is uh, carries your donor's uh, name, correct? Yes. Yes. Out of respect. And, and now you, and this picture is a, you did a marathon or, or run, so a running event at I, some point. With, once uh, I recovered from a broken leg and re rehabbed for ten months from the uh, from the uh, fat embolism, you know, I'd lost forty pounds in the hospital. So it was, right. took a long time, but so it took ten months to rehab from that. I started doing triathlons, and right in the middle of all that, met my donor's family and right. found out that my donor's father was a runner in Virginia and somebody said, y'all should do an athletic event together. You could raise awareness for 
organ donation and for alpha-1 lung disease. Five weeks after we met, we did our first race. And that was an uh, an 8K race. It was five miles. Of course, I still can't run. I'm doing this. You know, I'm doing a ugly, I mean, because of the horrible, hips and the because leg of the hips. I'm doing this horrible, like, racy, racy walkie thing. I, I'm yeah. breathing just fine. And he jogged next to me. And um, that was, I think, the beginning for me to recognize what this meant. Yeah. Because when we crossed the finish line, the local TV station and newspaper did pieces. But then people started coming up to us and they would say things like, I, I read that article. And right. I know who you are, and I want you to know that because of that, I've decided to become an organ donor. Yes. Or, that, or tell me more about Alpha One, because I've got a, a, a cathar- cousin who a needs to be A cathartic experience for you to well, realize that. This, this was a gift yes. that we've been given. Yes. This ability to have a positive impact. Right. And so over the next year, Kevin and I did several more races. His donor's, name was, donor's father's name was Kevin. Yes. And a uh, wonderful, wonderful man. We started doing other races. We did a half marathon in Nashville, as a matter of fact. And then a year after we met, we went back to Richmond and did our full marathon together. Full marathon. And the next morning we were on... I can't even do a full marathon. That's amazing. We were on CNN the next morning. Yes. So this is when it began. This, you know, been given an opportunity to have a positive impact. And now you've been given a, a platform. Right. You have the gift, a positive... Message and and there you have a platform yeah, to and so it wasn't just CNN it went on and on right. there's a lot of publicity from there to Sports Illustrated to HBO to so, ABC so, World News so you and her the, the, yes. and the lungs have had a dramatic impact not just in a small little community from where you were your town and support yeah. and and hers up in Lynchburg but now uh, not really even nationwide I mean internationally Inter- just, international internationally platform. Yes. platform for the alpha community and organ donation and, ha- and how important it is uh, uh, for you, the whole story is just unbelievable and how important it is that that you have many lives and, and many gifts given to you really to continue on and, and do good yeah. and and live your beyond your wildest dreams. And yeah, so this is the, the beyond your wildest dreams. This is where this comes from. Before my transplant, I used – when I thought about what is it that I want to get out of the transplant, I said, bare bones, what I want is to be better. Now, I have no idea what better means, right. just better. And every now and then, I would allow myself to, to have this wild dream. And the wild dream, the wildest dream was that what if I actually got back to normal? What if I had 100% of my lung function? Yes. And I would say, no, no, don't even think about that. And instead of getting 100% of my lung function, I ended up with like 135, 140% right. of my which lung is, function, which is beyond my wildest right. dream. And most physicians would go, this is totally unusual. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's. And should not happen. Right. 130%. It's, uh, it's just a powerful thing, uh, message. So now you're you're living those dreams, yeah. and you're advocating for the alpha community, right? Um, and and as I tell patients, and, and you're so much a better messenger than I am, that there is always hope, and there's always challenges you're going to face, but nothing that can't be overcome. Yeah. Len, I want to tell you, I'm so excited to have you here today, and and this is so important. 
for our small little town of Chattanooga, our small little practice. Um, I have a lot of patients that are, are seeking help, seeking hope. And the, when they hear this message, it, it makes me want to work harder for them. But I also want everyone to know that we're not just working hard for you, but, but there's advocates like you out there, particularly in the alpha community, who, who is another voice they can go listen to or talk to, uh, aside from their medical professionals, to give them more hope and encouragement. I know we talked a while and, and we've covered a lot of topics, but I just want to say thank you for being here. And uh, I appreciate Thank you so that. much for having me. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Everyone, go out there and, and do well. Keep the faith and the hope and uh, breathe better again. Thank you.